Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM. Hofstra's morning wake up call broadcasting live from the Philip Richard Cavallero studio. This is the Thursday edition of Hofstra's morning wake up call. And we're talking Long Island life, national news and international issues. I'm your host, Ronnie Gonzalez, joined by the lovely Dallas Jackson, our incredible reporter, Jason Oig, and our incredible producer, Luke Farrell. How are we doing today, guys? We're doing pretty good today, actually. And before we get started with the rest of the show, we're going to get straight into the headlines for today. So, in a story about inequality, The Guardian covered how Detroit power outages disproportionately hit minority and low-income areas. City electricity providers are set to use resilient lines in richer and whiter areas, whereas poorer districts suffer from failure-prone equipment. Taking it back to Long Island, News 12 Long Island, said that Bayshore Union Free School District sent out alert an alert warning parents about a new phone scam meant to fool them into thinking their child has been kidnapped. Visit News 12 Long Island for further details. And sticking on to the island, an outpouring of grief at a funeral for a slain paramedic, Allison Russo. Some 1,500 mourners attended the funeral service Wednesday in the Tillys Center to honor FDNY paramedic from Huntington, who was fatally stabbed last week in an unprovoked attack near her station house. And then Damian Brown becomes the first man to row from New York to Galloway, Galloway, Ireland. He left Chelsea Pier on a rowboat June 14th. After 3,000 miles in 112 days, he finally arrived at his destination yesterday. And those are your headlines for this lovely Thursday. I found it interesting that those phone scams, gosh, they just keep going up. You know, there's always something going on, things like that. So you definitely have that. One thing that always goes on is the weather. We definitely have that going around, so we'll have that on that end. I'm curious what you all think about the uh, person going across the uh, Atlantic over there, if anything else. Any any regards to that? You ever seen the movie Castaway? Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's what it, I mean, it's it's completely different. But he, he wasn't trekking, he got stuck. Yeah, he got, well, granted, he got stuck, but I mean, three months, 3,000 miles. Did, did he pack food and water with him? I'm, I'm intrigued. I mean, I, I'm, you're a, he's, on the, he's on the open sea, you know, hopefully. You're not supposed give to drink ocean water, Well, Ronnie. yeah, but I'm saying, it's I'm so not saying for, for water. <laughs> I'm not saying for water. I mean, you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fish, you, you know. Oh, <laughs> getting philosophical with this one. Just, just <laughs> a Go, little bit, just a little bit. Going from the open seas to the open sky, here is your weather report. Oh, now, weather-wise, we don't have too much going on today. If you do like uh, some great sunshine, some great vibes, you'll get all of that today. We're going to get a high of 73 and a low of 56. Precipitation is not really to be found so much, mainly around 0.15%. So thankfully, good sunshine skies over there. Humidity is about 82%, and the wind is going to be at 6 miles per hour. And that is your weather report. Otherwise, we are going to go and jump into these headlines as we can. So, Ronnie, if you want to take it away. So I thought it was only appropriate after talking with uh, the lovely Medea Benjamin last week about her, uh, her upcoming book, 
war in Ukraine making sense of a senseless conflict that we go and touch on the uh, the most recent news regarding the war. While Russian maps of Ukraine's southern border of Kherson have revealed substantial territorial losses to Kyiv troops. The Russian Defense Ministry releases a daily video briefing, but the video made no mention of the territorial losses. However, it's been proven that Russian forces no longer control the, the village of Duchans, located on the west bank of the Dnieper River, where Ukrainian forces have been fighting to reclaim that captured territory since the beginning of Moscow's offensive. In the northeastern Kharkiv region, defense ministry maps show that Russian forces no longer occupy positions on the west of the Oska River. It appears that troops have retreated close to 13 miles to the east as far as the Luhansk province border, following the counteroffensive from the Kyiv army. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the situation in his nightly address, saying, quote, The Ukrainian army is advancing in quite a rapid and powerful manner in the south of the country within the context of the current defense operation. Continuing on to say, Dozens of the population centers have been liberated. These are in the Kherson, Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk region altogether. The Ukrainian military has stated that Russian forces are, quote, demoralized and have been falling back on positions, even destroying ammunition depots and bridges on their way out in an attempt to slow down the offensive of our troops, according to the Ukrainian Defense Ministry. Ukraine's Deputy Minister of the Interior said on Tuesday that Ukraine's forces have recaptured 50 towns and villages. However, the when is not specified. Kyiv's forces have been clawing back at territory for some weeks now, but have experienced acceleration in recent days. Al Jazeera's Hoda Abdel Hamid stated that Ukraine had caught Russian forces by surprise and were able to break defensive lines. What do you guys think? Well, every time we hear more news about the war in Ukraine, I'm always just wondering. I always think back to when it first started and how it's been such a long time mm -hmm. and how this must be hard not only for the Ukrainian people, but maybe just the people in Russia who want this to end or don't want to take part in this anymore. Because we have been hearing stories about officials in Russia turning against Putin and also people fleeing from Russia who might be forced to join the war one way or another because of either they don't want to take part in the war or they believe morally that this isn't what they should be doing with their time. It just makes me feel that there are so many people suffering in Europe because of a variety of ways, either in Ukraine being attacked and trying to be controlled by Russia and just the Russian people who really don't have any other choice in the matter. And then there's the issue of where it goes from here. Obviously, you've heard Putin kind of rabble the nuclear rattle, if anything, trying to go and get through with that. Uh, at least from what I had found for the most part, he stated that he would, quote, certainly use all the means at our disposal to, to protect Russia and our people, uh, considering, I guess, that ominous um, vibe around it, if anything else. Uh, but also, also there was the uh, part about the Zaforizhia, a nuclear power plant that's still under Russian control, or at least, quote, under Russian control, if they try to go and utilize that. Uh, granted, Ukrainian staff are still mobilizing that unit itself. It's not under Russian control, technically. Uh, but even so, still having that as an opportunity for Russia is scary enough. Uh, the only thing is, of course, is that if Putin doesn't do, end up doing something like that, if anything, because of these territorial losses and things like that, you could see his alliance that he has with the quote, quote, BRICS, which is kind of like a big international conglomerate. Think of like NATO, but everything else. So Brazil, 
Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are all a part of that. That's why you hear India and China being like, well, you know, Russia's doing okay and all that stuff. And that's because they have that partnership itself. Mm -hmm. I think overall, though, when you do end up possibly having that situation, there was, I think, a part in the article that I was reading on Reuters, basically like, well, the nuclear emissions could just go right into Russia on like a wind or something like that, or it goes into other neighboring countries. So that could really backfire anyways, if that were to be the case, whether it's a strike, whether it's a nuclear missile being like put into a truck, they were saying, could be the same implication there too. So I think it's not just cut and dry on what he could do with that situation, but however that ends up happening, I think he's got to face the repercussions of anything else. And even in the case that it somehow does backfire on Russia. The people who will be most impacted are just citizens in general. So there doesn't seem to be anyone, there's no good outcome at all when it comes to the threat of nuclear war- warfare. I feel like we can all agree on that. Absolutely. So it's a very delicate and it's a very delicate situation that you have to account for all the ways that it could go wrong. And I don't see a single way that it could quote unquote go right. Yeah, and I mean, just to touch back on your original point, whenever we get news uh, about the the conflict, no matter how good it looks for the Ukrainian forces, we always have to ask, like, when when is it finally going to end? And I could be jumping the gun a little bit, but it finally looks like Russia's realizing that it's on the back foot. Mm. I I spoke about it. Uh, I spoke about it in the summer when it was still pretty recent. That for Russia, the question is, how much will it take? For the people of Ukraine, it's whatever it takes. And there's there's only a, there's only a, uh, so much that Russia can throw at this being it you know people or you know um, equipment. One of the one of the stories that came out just recently, a 27 year old rapper in Russia took his own life to avoid the draft. Mm. And before he, uh, before he tragically passed away, he declared that he was quote not ready to kill for any ideals. Mm. It the the Russian people's hearts are not in this war, and if you're going to fight a war, you need that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I, you know, it's hopefully, hopefully Putin begins to realize that his people are not behind him as, as much as he thinks. And they, they, you know, start to take a step back. Yeah, it's for a lack of better words. It's like the saying it's like people are playing to win and there are people who are playing to survive. I feel like the mm-hmm. Ukrainian people are doing this because they have a right to their home and they know that. Whereas the Russian people view this one way or another as an invasion or as them being in someone else's territory where they really don't belong. And this is something that Mario kind of switching. Mario talked about this uh, last night where he talked about the issue, like diplo- the need for diplomacy and how that's the one way that he views that the war can change. And I feel like the world is ready for diplomacy one way or another because actually Europe ho- held a 44-liter summit in Prague without Russia. So if there are people in Europe ready to do the work on a diplomatic end and they're excluding Russia, I can't imagine that Putin will appreciate that with whatever decision comes to light. And, and to Ronnie's point, just domestically, I remember reading about how apparently there were some, like, even Russian media outlets that were even criticizing at least Putin and the government itself for having these war losses. I mean, you obviously think of the Russian media system as just being this, you know, centrally controlled, government-oriented media system, but even the fact that they're speaking out about this in that, in that sense definitely has some aspect to it as well, which exactly. I think is very unprecedented. The, the people are split because you see that the defense ministry is putting out a daily briefing of what's happening, and they're not mentioning the losses in territory. They're, they're hiding it despite the fact that the maps are released. We all see it. You where you where you no longer are. And the people are the people are going to make it known. They don't want to be there as much. They don't want to be involved as much as Ukraine doesn't want them to be involved. So, it, you know, the it, it's only a matter of time. I think another 
point, just looking at it mil- militarily, uh, Russia's had to take drones from Iran, which I've already heard have been very problematic, a lot of them failing. They've had to take long-range missiles from North Korea, which are some of the worst in the world and some of the oldest in technology. And I was reading a report of uh, a lot of these larger groups of people that they've now added into their army. A lot of them don't want to be there. They don't know how to fight. They're using very old equipment, and many of them, they said, are drunk on the job. That's how... Again, that's not the trend that you hear of some country that is making huge leeway in a war. So, again, we're just hearing they're getting very battered. And as we've seen in conflicts like our own fight for independence and other conflicts like Vietnam, when you go into someone's territory that they know, they love, and they will fight for their life, and you are just simply trying to forward a cause that doesn't quite have that same friction to it, it's really hard to stop that. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it, everything just comes back to the same point that for Russia, it's a matter of how and for Ukraine, it's a matter of, well, the, the, the ends justify the means, whatever it takes. Well, otherwise, hopefully we can see an end to this war at any rate uh, when the time comes, as we still have to talk about it every week. It seems like there's another story that happens uh, throughout that time. Nevertheless, when we get back, we are going to talk on Dallas's story about a professor who had gotten fired for some... We'll say, I don't know how we'll call it. Let's say grading-wise, student outcry, if anything. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But first, here's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, which the very apropos Teach Your Children song. If you are just joining us, you are listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University on the Thursday edition of the Morning Wake Up Call. My name is Dallas Jackson, and we are just getting into our second story about ongoing debates surrounding the firing of a tenured NYU professor. So as some of you may have seen on social media, just before the start of the fall semester, Dr. Maitland Jones Jr., formerly a professor of organic chemistry at New York University, was terminated over a controversial petition circling around his student body. In the petition signed last spring, 82 out of his 350 students claimed that Professor Jones's class was, quote, the class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has fi- and has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole, end quote, according to the New York Times. According to the original report, this specific organic chemistry course was notorious for ending many students' dreams of medical school as it is a required course and students taking the class said their grades would no longer suffice as standards. Students reported that Professor Jones taught with a level of dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, and opacity about grading, and a spokesperson from the university defended the decision by stating that organic chemistry has always been a stumble course in which students get a higher level of Ds and Fs than most, and that Professor Jones's course evaluations were, quote, by far the worst, not only, members, not only among members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses, end quote. In defense of Professor Jones, other faculty members and even students in the same course also spoke out. A former TA now pursuing their PhD at Harvard said that they think the petition comes from more unhappiness with grades rather than true feelings of mistreatment, and that they have noticed that many many of the students who consistently complained about the class did not use the resources we afforded to them. So really, no matter what happened inside the classroom, students who signed the petition actually appeared shocked that the professor was fired, as that was not their original goal, and it did not seem possible. So from a, I wanted to get more of a student's perspective here at Hofstra. We don't really 
hear about stuff like this going on, but what do you guys think about the story? I have never taken organic chemistry, nor will I ever take it in my life. I have heard horror stories about those courses. I know for Hofstra here, it used to be, what did they have? It was one semester they packed it in. They change it now where it's going to be two semesters for the year now because they had that whole change going on for time-wise. Uh, but I think overall that students, they definitely have a right to go and criticize professors if there are anything that happens. That's why you have stuff like course and teacher ratings at the end of the year. If you want to go and say, hey, listen, the grading that you did, like the coursework that you did and all that wasn't really up to par. Granted, Dr. Jones literally wrote the book on organic chemistry. I mean, what, it's about 1,300 pages or so that he had through there. Uh, granted, though, he's definitely been accommodating towards the students, but also the students didn't want the end goal of him being fired. And I think that's the important part for this. They didn't want this to happen in that end of a way. I don't know what the university had done to pretty much say, listen, now he's going to be fired for this reason. That hasn't really been indicated so much, if anything else. But granted, I think, like you said, the TA point was definitely a big one as well, that even, you know, their former helpers and whatnot said that, hey, they were doing well. Obviously, I think a lot of the times when it comes to the pandemic, we've already seen some learning declines. I know with Dr. Wilburn, our former interview that we had, especially on this national standards itself for testing, you definitely have that too. Uh, but for me, I'm taking an intro to higher education class and for graduate school right now. And one of the things they said is that when it came to, at least in the 90s, when they had like a mass transition of higher education, that for the ACT, they did a study and that GPA scores were tended to be the same, but ACT scores itself went up over the years. No, sorry. GPAs went up. My bad. ACT scores stayed stagnant. So pretty much even when you're getting that learning and stuff, it's really a matter of are like grades being inflated for certain reasons because students don't want to fail? Do you want to have that expectation of my parents really want me to go to medical school and be a doctor? Uh, but granted, I have to go and pass this class, which maybe I can't pass necessarily. So you have that too. And I mean, the story just by itself is, is crazy to me because we've all been in a class at some point and thought, yeah, this is it. Like, I, I'm, I'm not passing this class. And Everybody talks about it like, you know, we should say something, we should put a petition together, we, you know, we should bring it to the attention of the, of the principal or whoever it may be. But how many times has it actually happened? Does, does the class actually go about it? Do I think that their intention was to get him fired? No, absolutely not. But I think it was an attempt to, you know, get some kind of curve or just bring to attention that, hey, this class is a lot harder than people may think. You know, you can only see so much outside looking in. And it's affecting our ability to get into med school, like to pursue a career. For with that aside, I mean, there are some classes. E the classes that are the more most difficult, I feel like, as a as a teacher, you need to be a little bit more articulate with the way that you teach it. Like you, as a as a somebody who has a mastery of that subject, given the fact that it's so difficult, should prioritize making it understandable for your students, because. I don't think it speaks too kindly as your uh, to your perform or you know in regards to your performance as a teacher, if your grades are your overall grades from your class are low just because the course is a difficult course. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Luke said he this guy wrote the book. He knows what he's talking about. So, do I think it's a little bit of both of people not using the the resources you know afforded to them, and you know maybe him not having a you know, a cohesive way of teaching, maybe. But if he wrote the book and he's been doing it for this long, so, something tells me he's not the he's not he's not the to blame or not the only one to blame. Mm -hmm. And to hop on how you mentioned that it's like to just emphasize how low the grades were, there was a quote in the article from the New York Times that was like, There were some scores consistently being in like the single digits or the low double digits. 
and those are on like exams. And again, I'm a communications major. I am not going to be taking organic chemistry. I have no passion to be going to medical school. But if organic chemistry is such a foundational course on your journey to medical school, and across the board, even outside of NYU, you hear stories about how difficult these courses are, how they're like, quote unquote, weed out courses to try to see, try to get people out of the major. In my mind, that's a very toxic mindset to have. If you're a major, you want your major to be so difficult that you can, quote unquote, weed out those who you don't think will succeed in the specific course. That's not okay because, A, it doesn't count for people who maybe have different differential learning styles. If organic, if it's a lecture style class and you're not great with auditory learning or you're more um, like experimental learning or you're more visual learning, those types of courses, like lecture, large lecture style courses, aren't the best environment for you to be in. So having like quote unquote weed out courses, I think just is detrimental to students with alternative uh, learning styles or maybe even students with like just general learning disabilities. Like I have ADHD. I know I can't sit for a very long time in those types of classrooms, especially large classrooms. And those were like, from the article, those were like huge class sizes. So maybe just those aspects of the environment just aren't the best. So maybe the university should evaluate how could they, they could make them better for students rather than firing the professor. But those are just my two cents on the matter. And I think the article mentions that it utilizes a problem-solving based learning class. I don't exactly know what that means entirely, but I guess it's a new way of formulating for teaching and whatnot. And I think a lot of the times professors, especially they've been around for a very long time, they're going to stick to the ways that they have. They're not really going to change the style in which they do it. But overall, I think, especially with this generation, you know, obviously having online capabilities, um, maybe going after the pandemic, maybe so just not really being motivated to learn or just knowing how to study, I think was another instance from the article. So I think just trying to get that back in either remedial courses or just having the support there for them can help them succeed. But granted, also if you're getting, you know, 20s, 30s, and some of them I think we're getting zeros on these exams, that's also something else to look at as well too. Yeah, you mean like it's... I can't really fully wrap my head around it because I've, I've never heard of a class being single digits, low, double digits. It, it's scary because, I mean, like everybody else said, I'm a, I'm a comm major too. I'm a communications major. There is, there's, I don't, I don't see a point in the near future of me taking organic chemistry. I took chemistry in high school, but that's a whole nother, you know, a, a, <laughs> whole, a whole nother brand. But I mean, yeah, that's. It's kind of that's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It, it's terrifying. And what Luke said makes complete sense. Some people are not as motivated anymore or just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel it doesn't call for a complete firing. I think it's more of a, a reevaluation and try to figure out how can we how can we change this so that it makes a little bit more sense and it's a little more ethical for the students. Yeah. And like you brought up the ethicality of courses like this. It also makes me think about like the ethicality of the competitiveness of certain programs like post-grad, like medical school and like law school and how I can, I see people like going into their like first year of college, like already is like sweating over the stress of going to medical school or pursuing a law degree and just things like that. Like if you are stepping onto a college campus and you're in like your freshman or sophomore year and you're already like cramping up over the stress of something that is three or two or three years down the line, that will also probably take you an additional like four or six years, depending on whatever you do. I, I just think we need to find a better way to showcase these programs and make it not as terrifying. Because again, you're gonna go be a doctor or a lawyer. Those are very serious professions. Oh, I applaud everyone who has that passion or that drive. However, people shouldn't be having such fear 
around doing these things. Like, this shouldn't be detrimental to your mental health and well-being. And according to the article, students were carrying a lot of stress from this course because of the fear of not being able to go to medical school because this one course would be holding them back or the fear of dropping this course and seeing how it would set them back on their path to medical school. So I just think colleges started to give students so much stress and anxiety that it's just causing tension between the students and the professors in general. Yeah, you don't want to you don't you don't want to see people give up on what they've been so passionate about because of a, a setback, but that's what it looks like it was coming to. Like you said, it you make you make a great point that was, these courses for these professions are it should be a noble cause. It should be something that you should take pride in being a part of. And you think about it before you get into college, what is it that I want to do with my life? Do I want to pursue law? Do I want to pursue medicine? And if you come up with that, then more power to you. That's a commitment that you've prepared yourself mentally to take and to make, you know, to, to, to pursue. But it's, I don't, I don't see, I, I, it's not healthy. It's not healthy how stressful it is beforehand. Of course, you're going to be nervous going into it. That's only natural. But to be this torn to pieces over something that hasn't happened yet, that this is a stepping stone to medical school itself, is it's not it's not good it doesn't it doesn't reflect well on i believe the it doesn't to me it doesn't feel like it reflects well on the institution you know that's providing these classes because not only the class the course itself is already difficult i don't want to you know scare people away i want to bring people in i want to make them feel like i can do this you know, it's, a, it's a daunting task so i feel like we should be or they should be the most welcome as welcoming as they can Definitely, it's something to consider for that end. I mean, obviously, whatever class you do take, if, whether it's organic chemistry or geography, there's always going to be people that, you know, might not necessarily want to be there or let's say not go for it. But then you also have people who really excel at these things. But again, like Dallas, you said, it's a matter of how you learn through that environment, whether that works for you. Uh, or not, but also accommodating for that environment for professors because a lot of the times, some of them have been around since the 80s and 90s, and where were their learning accommodations <laughs> in the 80s and 90s? I mean, they were there, but not as prevalent as they are today. You don't really have, like, Hofstra has a student access services spot. You really wouldn't have had that a number of years ago. Uh, so it's definitely something to look at as well uh, if that works too. Otherwise, we are going to get moving. When we come back, we're going to have our interview with Dan Schwartz on the Hempstead Turnpike. But first, we will go on a little bicycle race with Queen. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call over here on 88.7 FM. Uh, today, we're going to talk again uh, about our interview that we have. So throughout the United States, cycling accidents continue to be a major issue. According to the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, deaths among cyclists by motor vehicles saw an increase of 5% in 2021, raising the death toll to 985. And despite over $44.5 million being available in funding for the state of New York and the Transportation Alternatives Program, debts continue to climb. Nowhere is this more prevalent than that of Hempstead Turnpike, what has been dubbed by the Tri-State Transportation Campaign as the, quote, most dangerous street in the entire Tri-State area. Here to talk about the impacts of Hempstead Turnpike is Dan Schwartz, an independent journalist based in Colorado and the author of The Making of a Monster, The Most Dangerous Road for Cyclists in America, currently on Bicycling.com. Mr. Schwartz, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. So while we start, uh, in your article, you describe necessarily the beginnings of Hempstead Turnpike and how it came to be. So could you just briefly describe the Rhone's foundations and how it got uh, played a part there? Yeah, certainly. Um, I was able to trace it back. Uh, the farthest I was able to trace it back was um, it was used uh, initially as a, um, 
uh, footpath by the Rockaway uh, Native people there. Then around the 1650s, uh, uh, English colonizers, they started widening the path uh, for use of wagons. And um, that was kind of a rush job, it seemed. They were just felling trees and filling in holes with branches and packing them with dirt, just trying to get it done quickly. Um, and uh, that was, so it was just like kind of a ramshackle uh, path of the woods that was a little bit wider. Um, wasn't used very much except by local communities. Uh, people tended to travel uh, long distance on Long Island, mostly by boat back then. Um, then fast forward about 200 years from that, around the 1850s, um, it starts to resemble uh, more what you'd kind of imagine, um, probably like it widens to 66 feet, which is the width of a small airstrip. It's now packed dirt, not loose loam. Um, and, uh, and eventually sections of it become what's called a plank road. It's reinforced with wooden planks, um, so uh, uh, wheeled vehicles, uh, including cars around that uh, little later can get through. Um, and it also becomes sections of a sections of the macadam, which is crushed stone. Um, and then around the 1930s, uh, cars start to reign supreme automobiles and, um, it starts to pretty much look like, like it looks today, um, becomes paved. There's uh, summer homes, flowering trees, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, just, of course, with much less commercial and residential development. Now, Mr. Schwartz, you give us a you give a bit of a history lesson in regards to uh, Hempstead's beginnings. Now, can you can we take a bit of a, a step for, further and can you explain to us how the turnpike got into its uh, current condition and the main contributing factors of such? Yeah, from what I was able to tell, um, just reading uh, uh, the historical record on this, um, around the 1930s when cars um, were becoming really popular. They, they weren't, um, like in the late 1800s, they were popping up, but they didn't really get super popular until around the 1930s or so. Um, and that really drove the, um, the development of Hempstead Turnpike and a lot of the roads on Long Island um, into being what you see them as today. Um, motorists really drove the development of these roads. And at first, Driving automobiles was, um, this was a surprise to me, was a form of leisure, recreation, much like riding bicycles back then. Um, of course, it's, uh, you know, the primary mode of transportation for, for many people today. Um, but the, the boom of the automobile is, is what led to uh, Hempstead Turnpike um, being what it is today. And as you gave a sort of a history lesson, as Ronnie did say, you talked about the historical record, and I believe the historical record kind of coincides with the history of tragedies that occurred on the Hempstead Turnpike. And also in your work, you describe the story of Andrew Lottie as a main focus of the Turnpike's dangerous roots and conditions. Why did you specifically want to incorporate that story in particular? Yeah, Andrew's, Andrew's is a sad story. Um, I, I chose that story... Um, one, you know, just for a practical reason, um, I, I don't have, a, this is a, a magazine project, not a book project, I didn't have a lot of time. So his parents called me back um, and uh, we were able to establish a good um, working relationship. So simply in part for that practical reason, but also the reason I was drawn to that story individually is um, I wanted people to understand, get some idea of who Andrew was, um, emphasis on some, I, you know, um, I never met him. Uh, and of course the readers, many of the readers probably never met him. So just a you know, fraction of who he was, but I wanted people to get an impression of that so they could understand, um, why this is, um, 
why this is such a serious issue. Um, these are people who are dying and being seriously injured on the road, and, and Andrew tragically was one of them. So I just thought his story could help um, people understand why this is why this is just, yeah it's a serious deal. Last year, I actually lived right next to the Turnpike, and when I would go on walks, and even this year now with my car on campus, driving on the road, I noticed that there's no bike lanes, and actually, you talked about how the Turnpike has no bike lanes, and the Tri-State Transportation Campaign called it the most dangerous street in the Tri-State area. Um, So what safety improvements for the Turnpike um, being few and far between, how have you tried to advocate for these families and for cyclists in general? Well, I don't, um, I don't really see myself as an advocate. Um, uh, you know, of course I'm a journalist. I, um, I think they're, they're different jobs with different skills and different motivations. I mean, I'm, I'm simply the guy with the shovel. I know things and I, I try to get people to pay attention to them. Um, I, but I mean, I guess in a way, um, you might say what I'm doing is a form of advocacy. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get people to, uh, pay attention to this issue and, uh, and, and see that it matters. But, um, you know, beyond, beyond that, I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, making phone calls to lawmakers or, you know, community stakeholders and stuff and and trying to get them to take a position one way or the other. I'm just, um, digging up the facts, laying them out, um, hopefully in a compelling and understandable way and, and hoping that will lead people to make their own decisions. So you do mention that while you might not necessarily talk to lawmakers, you do have at least have an indication of what the law and history has been through the automobile industry on the turnpike. I know you mentioned the coalition that had been formed uh, more so by the automobile industry in the early days, how that kind of got kicking with the automobile rollouts. Uh, but specifically in the article, you mentioned about New York's Department of Transportation that hadn't necessarily been making enough safety changes fast enough uh, through their, I guess, indication of allowing for cyclists and just pedestrian walkways and things of that nature. So what changes? have they necessarily made and then are there any more to follow from the DOT if anything um, I, I didn't have a great line of communication with the New York State Department of Transportation um, they uh, mostly provided responses to me in writing via email uh, which is uh, tends to be frustrating as a journalist um, but they uh, what they told me in a statement is they um, have made newer, new and wider crosswalks, installed new signs and pavement markings, raised medians, adjusted signal timing to calm traffic in certain areas, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know what else the DOT is planning. I mean, but certainly uh, listeners of this show can call the agency and ask them what they plan to do to mitigate this violence on the road they maintain. But, but um, beyond what I provided in the story, which, which was not very much, um, I, I don't know what the DOT uh, is is up to. And again, if you're listening, we're talking to Dan Schwartz, an independent journalist and the author of The Making of a Monster, currently on Bicycling.com. Now, Mr. Schwartz, you speak to the issue of victim blaming in roadway accidents. Why is it that you feel cyclists are more prone to blame in these situations than the motorists themselves? Yeah, this was this was um, an interesting thing for me to discover. I hadn't written about this topic before, so people write about it. Uh, a lot or it's probably old news to them, but I mean, this victim blaming, I was, I was shocked to see is, is, uh, deeply ingrained in our culture and our history. Um, and it came about in that time frame around the 1930s when cars were starting to boom. Um, and, uh, um, uh, people, you know, at first drivers were, were hitting non-drivers, um, 
and and that was that was bad news for the automobile industry and people cared about that it was um shocking and problematic but then the auto industry around that time period uh i called it a propaganda campaign i think in, in my future and that's really what it was they started to shift the blame from the drivers to the victims people who are being hit by the drivers through um a systematic and prolonged newspaper campaign um and i I, you know, I, it's it's hard to point to one thing in the past and say that's entirely the reason things are the way are, they are today. But I think that played a major driver um, in, uh, in in contributing to why we blame the victims today. Um, and you know, as a result, the drivers today have the power, and um, everyone not in a vehicle on or near the road uh, don't have the power. So I think that's what's allowing it to perpetrate. You know, the, the, yeah. And as you mentioned, kind of that campaign for the motor industry and how that affected our mindset when it comes to these issues, what steps do you believe should be taken in order to not only ensure pedestrian cyclist safety on Hempstead Turnpike, but also maybe a mindset change in order to make roads like this safer for everyone's utilization? I'm, I'm not, um, I feel like I'm not super qualified to answer that, but I, I could give it a crack. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly um, uh, no uh, transportation or, or um, public works uh, expert, but from the experts I did talk to, I understand that it's really complicated solving issues like this. Generally though, if you were to point to one thing, and this is, this is probably an oversimplification, but um, a lot of the experts I talked to said, if you were to do one thing to make a dangerous street like Hempstead Turnpike safer, um, you would, it would be to lower the speed limit and also enforce the speed limit. Um, but beyond beyond that, I, I know there's a, a lot of other things. I didn't get um, too much into solutions in this piece just because there was so much to unpack. So I, I couldn't speak too much to, um, to solutions beyond that. We really appreciate your time and for joining us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add about how our listeners could maybe get in contact with you or maybe just say points of inquiry? Certainly. I'd love to hear from people. Um, I can be reached at my website, which is danjschwartz.com. That was our interview with Dan Schwartz, an independent journalist, talking about Hempstead Turnpike and his article he wrote, The Most Dangerous Road for Cyclists in America. Otherwise, we're going to go head on up to our next report. Uh, I guess, Ronnie, if you just want to go and fill us in on what we had over there. On Friday of last week, Hofstra hosted the Pride Court Showcase 2022, a little talent show for the contestants of the Pride Court, which, Luke, you just so happened to be a part of. So I decided to go over and get a little sound and give you guys a little insight as to what you might have missed if you couldn't make it. The Hofstra Pride Showcase has come and gone, but it was definitely a night to remember, one filled with musical performances and magical displays. For those of you that couldn't make it, here's what you missed. To kick off the show, we were treated to an incredible performance from Hofstra's very own Hofstra Dutchman all-male a cappella group. From there, we were introduced to our incredible cast of contestants. 
Well now, ladies and gents, this is the moment you've all been waiting for, the introduction of the Pride Court. So let's meet all of our Pride Court members on stage right now. Here they come. Really quickly before we get to the individual acts and introductions, I'm going to pass the microphone down. Just Pride Court members, just say your name for the audience. With the lineup as talented as it was, every act was a tough one to follow. But most of the audience was just excited for a show. My name is Ronnie Gonzalez, reporting at the Pride Court Showcase 2022, here joined by... Uh, Cassie Petoni. Well, Cassie, you're a student here at Hofstra, so I know you are very much excited about tonight and all the acts. How are you feeling? I'm really excited. I've, this is my first year at Hofstra, so I'm excited to see what the Pride Court is all about. Well, I know that for sure that they're going to put on a show that you enjoyed. Hope to keep you coming back. Some knew exactly what they were looking for. Case 2022, I'm joined by... Matthew Genest. Well, Matthew, I need to know how you feeling about tonight. Is there anybody in particular that you're looking out for? Absolutely not, but I am excited. I just want to say thanks for having me on the show. Of course, of course, anytime. You seem very excited to be here, and who am I to say no? <laughs> who am I to say no? Is there any specific act that you would like to see tonight? Rap. Rap? Well, you know, I just, I just might have a little idea of what's coming, so you might just get that wish. And they got exactly what they came for. You got what it takes so you think you can rap? I can have it disappear like a thing on snap. I'm a real five star, I can do it again. It's just it for my GM, I'm a 10 out of 10. When I'm running on every man that you're high, I should just cover your mouth like I'm the flexing guy. You got yourself caught in a finger trap, but in a bunch of people, man, I'm sure they won't slap. Alright, that was the first verse. Number two, here we go. It was a musical night, and the Pride Court did not disappoint. From instrumental renditions of songs, taking inspiration from the classics and putting the vocals on display, to showing off both at the same time. As talented as they are, even the contestants had some feelings about the big night. I'm here joined by Mr. Tino Patino. Now Tino, you're getting ready for the big night, uh, Hofstra Pride 2022 Court Celebration. I need to know how you're feeling about tonight in general, any nerves, and uh, how confident are you? Well, there's always nerves, I think. You know, whenever you put yourself in front of a crowd, it's a tough thing to do. But respect to all my competitors here and fellow Pride Court members. It takes a lot of courage to get up on stage. Um, for me personally, I feel like everything that I've done at Hofstra has led me up until this point, And it's time to give them a show. My name is Ronnie Gonzalez, and I'm here joined by Mr. Nathan Monga. Well, Nathan, I need to know, how are you feeling about tonight in regards to, you know, the big, the big day, the big night, the Pride 2022 court competition? I'm not going to lie, I'm a little nervous because, like, you know, every time I perform, I'm a little nervous, but I'm confident because I rehearse and all this stuff, and I feel like we're going to have fun. So, yeah, I don't feel like it's very, like, as hard as it might seem to be. Like, I feel like it's all about having fun and enjoying ourselves. So I'm nervous, but confident. 
My name is Ronnie Gonzalez, and we are now here joined by Mr. Luke Farrell, a contestant on Pride's Court this year, 2022, getting ready for the big reveal at Fall Fest. Luke, I need to know, how are you feeling about tonight's event, and how do you think you're going to do? You know, I'm feeling okay. I'm not going first. I'm not going last. I, I feel like you're somewhat in the middle and whatnot. I learned something in psychology class, something called the recency effect. And so if you go either first or last or somewhere around that range, you're usually more memorable, if anything else. So that, that's good luck for me, I'm thinking. Uh, how I'm going to do, you know, I can't really say. I know I got a lot of people I know that are also in this competition. They're really great. Uh, I know we're all doing pretty well tonight, hopefully, which is good. I know we're going to get a lot of people turn out, turned out for it. So definitely a lot of fun. I am here joined by Yasmin Cunha today for the Pride 2022 court, getting ready for her big event. Yasmin, I need to know, how are you feeling about tonight? Uh, definitely a little bit nervous, like Luke said. Uh, you know, first and last are the most memorable, and I am first, so that's exciting. But I'm excited, I'm just happy to be here. As the night went on, the talents just kept coming, and we were treated to even more music and even some magic. Inside of my epic gold jacket right now, I have some cards, if I could just get it open, there it is. And I need you to pick a card, once I get them out, here they are, but you're gonna have to take, take, take a card, take a card, any card, any card you want. You're gonna have to take it from here, and you're gonna show the crowd what card that you pick, right? Okay, whenever you're ready. Don't show me, show them. And wait there, and audience, we need your help with this one as well. I'm going to shuffle these cards right here, and on the count of three, you're going to have to scream, magic. That's, that's easy, right? I feel like, I feel like you can do that. Alright, shuffle, 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 magic shuffle. Alright, here we go. Three, two, one. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end, and it was time to close out the night. And what better way to do so then with the sounds of Sigma Acapella? The fate of the court was then to be decided by the judges, and they had a lot to say about the night and their favorites. We're joined by Andrea Nadler from the Office of Admission. Oh, Andrea, you saw an incredible night of performances, one after the other. Is there anyone that really stuck out to you? Oh, my goodness. Caleb Congdon's performance was brilliant. It was breathtaking. The Phantom of the Opera, I really was blown away by his voice and the way he did that in such an enchanting way. Beautifully done. Brilliant performance. Well, I understand that you were a judge tonight for some of the performances. Is there any aspect of a performance that really sticks out to you or strikes a chord with you? Well, first of all, the way that these candidates held themselves so gracefully up on the stage, poised in front of a live audience, not knowing what they were going to be asked and having to showcase not only their pride but also their special talent and that that takes a lot of courage so I give a shout out to all of them I give them mad props for being willing to showcase their their pride and their talent on the stage for us all to see very proud of them Two joined by Hugo Morales well Hugo you saw an incredible show today one after the other incredible performances musical and magical is there any 
performance that stuck out the most to you tonight? That's a great question. Um, honestly, yeah, they were all amazing. Um, it takes a lot of guts to kind of go on stage, and everyone did such an amazing job. Um, I can't really choose one, to be quite honest. Everyone did such an amazing job. Again, a lot. Is there any part of a performance that uh, sticks out to you the most that gets you, uh, you know, that, that really strikes a chord with you? Um, yes, particularly um, I'm a big fan of anything musical, so the, those who played musical instruments as well as sang, um, those kind of really shined and stuck out to me, um, and those were just beautiful moments. We were really captivated by their performances. From there, it was up to the people to decide who they thought was deserving of becoming royalty. Voting was open, and the verdict rested in their hands. Both the judges and people's voices were heard as the royals were announced the following day at Hofstra's Fall Fest, where we were introduced to the new royals, Luke Farrell, Nathan Monga, Tina Patino, and Sophie Roy. This is easily one of the best yearly traditions on campus. I don't know who will be competing next year, but I do know that I will certainly be back in attendance. For Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Ronnie Gonzalez. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. I'm telling you, Friday was electric. Uh, it, it was absolutely electric, especially because of Luke's incredible rap. Off the top of the dome, you have to love it. It was so good. But honestly, yeah, if you guys couldn't make it this year, definitely try to to sew up next it, it's a great time now it, it wasn't on top of the dome you know i i actually wrote it in january and i'm like well i might as well hold on to something i was originally going to do because they have karaoke at orientation so i was going to do eight in original songs and then do it at orientation but i'm like i don't have enough time i can't think of all of it but i kind of combined a few things together that i had you know smashed it up and uh, I definitely enjoyed doing it. It was a lot of fun. Obviously, you had all the other uh, hostile royalty that were a part of it, or Pride Court and whatnot. They had some great acts. Uh, I know Gabe doing Please Mr. Postman. I know you had Gabby doing All Too Well. We, we mentioned uh, Nathan Manga doing uh, Paper Heart by Tori Kelly on the harp. Uh, so a lot of other acts that also had a lot of fun in there as well. That so was fantastic. Well, I just want to congratulate Luke on officially being Hofstra royalty. I could not attend on Friday. I apologize. But I will know whoever whoever goes up next year, I will be in attendance. Uh, cough, Danny DiCrescenzo should go for Pride Court. But that's just my two cents. But to wrap up the show, it's me again, Dallas. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the things that are trending on Twitter. I am very tapped into Twitter. It's kind of an addiction at this point. So here are some things that I've noticed that people are talking about. So as of today, Pitch Perfect officially turns 10 years old, which makes me feel incredibly wow. old and a little uncomfortable, if you guys have any thoughts on uh, it. How do I feel old at 20? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this exactly. is, I guess, you know, you always heard your parents say when you are a kid, they're like, meh, meh, meh. You're like, wow, no, I know what they're saying now. Mm -hmm. I remember being 12, and when that came out, my sisters loved it. We saw it in the theaters, I think, three times. It's such a good movie. I'm just shocked that 2012 was 10 years ago. How, mm -hmm. You know, is that even possible at this point? I, I don't even know. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't. It, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. And speaking of other flashbacks to childhood, um, the popular game Five Nights at Freddy's is officially getting a movie from Bloomhouse Production Company and is set to be directed by Emma Tammy. I did not personally play the game, but I had a lot of friends who did. So this does feel like a flashback to like middle school, late elementary oh, yeah. school. It's a little odd. Me and Jason were talking about it. This this uh this community does it does not die. It refuses <laughs> to let this thing rest. I mean, granted, 
the the fan games that have come out and all the content is great but it's been it's been around the block quite a few times i i never played it i couldn't tell you what it's like i just remember seeing the bear all the time with the <laughs> logo and then every new game it just got even crazier and crazier with the logo and i'm like no thanks i don't want the haunted chuck e cheese in my house so <laughs> and Kind of sticking on the theme of flashbacks to childhood, after decades of quote-unquote speculation from fans, Velma Dinkley of the hit show Scooby-Doo is depicted as a lesbian woman in the most newest edition of the Scooby-Doo movies that came out on Tuesday. As soon as I heard that it dropped, I did watch it, and it was a good movie. That was uh, Mindy Kaling, right? She mm -hmm. plays Velma, yeah. Mindy Kaling. I am obsessed with Scooby-Doo. Uh, so good. Yeah, favorite character is is it Velma or no? For me, Shaggy. I oh, love Shaggy. Casey Kasem, of course. Mm -hmm. On the radio, I mean, you got You can't just say don't say Casey Kasem. That's that's mm -hmm. what you'll say. But big Shaggy fan. And sticking in the more Halloween type of trend, Hocus Pocus House is now available for thirty one dollars on Airbnb. If anybody's in for a spooky good time, thirty one dollars. It's for a steal. Halloween. They're they're celebrating All Hallows Eve around that. Okay, time I'm not that, I'm not so. saying we do it, but for thirty one dollars, there's four of us in this room. Take a quick trip. We to take Salem. a trip. Take a trip to Salem. Hocus Pocus. My home. My home of Massachusetts. Be the new Sanderson sisters. Mm. We should do a show in in the in the Hocus Pocus. Can we house. sing the song? Can we sing the song from the movie? I put a spell on you. Oh, well, I mean, that's, you can, I mean. We go acapella. We go acapella. <laughs> oh, my God. Shout out all the acapella groups on campus. Oh. And for my final Twitter trend, there was a drive through survey released, and it said that Wendy's of the restaurant surveys had the worst accuracy, 79%. McDonald's and Arby's had the best with 89% accuracy. Wendy's had the worst customer service with 82% of votes, and Carl's Jr. and Chick-fil-A had the best at 95%. And kind of as my closing question, Everybody's favorite fast food restaurant. This is a no judgment zone. Mine is McDonald's. I can't get enough of it. That's a solid pick. I mean, I don't know if this really counts as fast food, but I'm absolutely obsessed with Panda Express. Ooh, good pick, good pick. I love Panda Express. I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm a Wendy's fan. I've always pretty. I mean, you can't go wrong with the Frosties. I have the chicken sandwich a lot. It's usually pretty good. And Popeyes. I know oh, it's right across the street solid. from here. Love me some Popeyes. So. I gotta go Taco Bell. A mm, classic. Clean never pick, disappoints. Clean always pick. It's different. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Otherwise, we are going to head on out. Dallas, I know you wanted to play. I put a spell on you. I do not have the Screaming Jay oh. Hawkins version or the Hocus Pocus one, but we have the CCR, Creedence Clearwater Revival version, uh, on here. So we are going to close out with that. Please join in tomorrow. We have our Friday show coming up. So please make sure to keep listening to the Morning Wake Up Call when you can. And we will see you all soon.